0: Matthew 18 presented Jesus' fourth recorded sermon, the sermon about kingdom values. This sermon preached only to the disciples, taught the values of humility, guarding against sin, pursuing a sinning believer, disciplining a sinning believer, and forgiving a repentant believer. Harmonious relationships between believers and within the church depend upon these kingdom values being recovered, embraced, and applied. The phrase in Matthew 19.1, when Jesus had finished these words, indicates the end of the sermon. And it is at this point in Matthew's chronology that the crucifixion is but a few weeks away. A few weeks away. Jesus' final recorded sermon, which occurs in Matthew 24 occurs a few days before the crucifixion. In that sermon, the sermon about the end times, Jesus is going to answer the disciples' questions regarding his return and the end of the present age. However, before he can deal with those issues, Jesus has a series of debates with the Pharisees and other religious leaders. Here in chapter 19, Matthew records one of those debates. The Pharisees questioned Jesus regarding divorce and remarriage. Jesus' answer to them prompts the disciples to ask a question about eunuchs. And so here Jesus, in Matthew 19, 1-12, speaks to the issue of marriage, divorce, and eunuchs. Marriage, divorce, and eunuchs. Now let's be honest, this is a difficult text. But it's a good one. And so whenever we deal with a difficult issue or a difficult text, I want to issue a warning. We must resist being influenced by our culture. We must resist being influenced by our biases. We must resist being uh, influenced by our experiences. We must resist being being influenced by our denominational affiliations. And we must resist being influenced by our traditions. When we come to the Scripture, we must set aside culture, bias, experience, denominational affiliations, and traditions. They must be set aside when we study the Scriptures. The following principles will be applied in handling this complex text. And of course, you can use these principles in the whole study of God's Word, but particularly when we deal with difficult issues. Number one, Scripture must be interpreted literally in light of the perspective of the author and original readers. Again, Scripture must be interpreted literally in light of the perspective of the author and the original readers. Understand that between us and them, there are some 2,000 to 4,000 years. As 21st century Christians, we cannot put our perspective onto the text. We cannot force our perspectives onto the text of Scripture. To understand the original reader's perspective, we must consider the grammar, historicity, and culture of the text. Second, Scripture must be interpreted literally, allowing for the everyday use of figurative language. Again, Scripture must be interpreted literally, allowing for the everyday use of figurative language. For example, a bird in a historical narrative is always a bird but a bird in a parable might symbolize something else. David Cooper said this, When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Take every word in its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context, studied in light of related passages, and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. Number three, Scripture must be interpreted within its context. Again, Scripture must be interpreted within its context. For example, in Matthew 18.10, Jesus says, The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Many have used this as a proof text for evangelizing the lost or the unregenerate. However, in the context, as you will recall from our study, Jesus commands believers regarding pursuing the lost or wandering, straying believer. The lost in Matthew 18 is not the unregenerate, but the regenerated. And let me tell you again, when you take the text out of its context, all you are left with is a con. And sadly, many people today have been conned by many pastors, telling you what this says and that says without actually knowing what it actually says. And finally, Scripture must interpret Scripture. Scripture must interpret Scripture. We take the difficult passages and understand them with the clearer ones. We understand difficult passages with the clearer ones. Remember, the Scripture cannot contradict itself. The Scripture is bound by what is called the law of non-contradiction. For example, you might read Hebrews 6, 4-6, and you might assume that Hebrews 6, 4-6 teaches that someone can lose their salvation. However, there are many other verses in the New Testament and the Old Testament that confirm the doctrine of eternal security. Therefore, to interpret Hebrews 6 as teaching you can lose your salvation would be wrong because it would be in contradiction to the other clear teachings of Scripture that teach you can't lose your salvation. So, to recap, Scripture must interpret Scripture. We must interpret the Scripture or understand the Scripture within its context. We must interpret the Scripture literally, and we must interpret it according to the perspective of the authors and original readers. If we would take these principles and study Matthew 19, we will rightly understand what Jesus says about marriage, divorce, and eunuchs. Let's begin with Matthew chapter 19, and verses 1 through 6. Matthew 19, 1-6. Now Jesus sets forth here God's purpose for marriage. God's purpose for marriage. Verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, He departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing Him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Again, here's God's purpose for marriage. Now let's note here at the beginning... This is a new phase of ministry for Jesus. His Galilean ministry has ended. He will no longer go back to Galilee until after his resurrection. His Perean ministry has now begun. Matthew 19 revealed that after finishing the sermon about kingdom values, Jesus departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, to understand... Where Jesus is presently, it's necessary to understand Israel's geopolitical climate during the first century .AD. Following the death of Herod the Great. You know, remember Herod who was the king when Jesus was born? Following his death 4 BC, Caesar divided Israel into five regions, five regions. The northernmost part of Israel was designated as Syria. South of Syria, directly south, was Galilee. Directly east of Galilee was Etoria. If we move southeast from Galilee, we come to Perea on the Jordan River's east side. Directly south of Galilee was Judea. And the region of Judea was comprised of three major areas, Samaria, Judah, and Idumea. Samaria, Judah, and Idumea. Matthew states here that Jesus left the region of Galilee and he and the disciples were headed towards the region of Judea. But he also states that they were beyond the Jordan. We have to recall that due to religious and racial prejudices, the Jewish people did not travel through Samaria on their way to Judah. So they would leave the region of Galilee... As they left Galilee, they would immediately come into the region of Judea. However, they would then cross the Jordan River and then travel down through Perea, so they didn't have to travel through Samaria. Eventually, they would cross the Jordan River again, entering back into the region of Judea near the city of Jericho. And so from there, they would then make their way to Judah and the city of Jerusalem. So if you have a Bible map and you're looking at your Bible map of the time of Christ, you'll uh, notice those various regions and how Jesus traveled. So he left Galilee, headed south, entered into Judea, okay, but doesn't want to go through the Samaritan part of Judea, crosses over the Jordan River into the region of Perea, down Perea, back over the Jordan, near Jericho, and then finally uh, to the city of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, as Jesus and the disciples... Traveled through Perea, Scripture says, large crowds followed him. The word large, pulus, means a great number of crowds. These crowds were likely other Jewish pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, just like Jesus and the disciples to celebrate Passover. Surrounded by a throng of people, what does Jesus do? He stops and heals them. Though headed to Jerusalem to die for the spiritual needs of humanity, Jesus does not hesitate to stop and minister to the spiritual or to the physical needs of the people. Indeed, we have a compassionate Savior. And it would behoove us ourselves as believers to follow his example of compassion and seek opportunities to minister to those in need. Now, during this time, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. Now, the word testing, pariso, or uh, parazo rather, means to uh, determine the nature of something. That's the usual meaning of the term testing. However, it can also mean to test someone or to trap someone. Matthew previously used this term in Matthew 4 1 and 3. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and the tempter came. Both tempted and tempter there translate this term, parazo. In Matthew 4, the tempter is Satan, and he came to tempt Jesus to sin. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees tested or attempted to trap Jesus, to discredit him in the eyes of the people. So the Pharisees asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? The word lawful, existent, means is it permissible? Is it permissible for a husband to divorce his wife for any reason? need to understand that the issue of divorce was such a crucial issue in Judaism that an entire tractate of the Talmud, the tractate tractate Gittin, was written on the topic. Divorce, apoluwa, from the Hebrew term karatut, means to cut off or bring to an end. It refers to the legal dissolution of a marriage contract. Now, divorce was not a simple escape clause. Okay? In their day, if you needed a divorce to get out of a marriage contract, you took several days to obtain it, you had to hire legal help, and you had to return the dowry. So it was expensive. Now notice, they did not ask whether divorce was permissible, but was it permissible for any reason? Their question is an attempt to determine whether Jesus agrees with the liberal view on divorce or the conservative view on divorce. Now, if I was and I'm not going to ask for a raise of hand, but if I was to ask for a raise of hand, which side do you think Jesus was going to take? I'll guarantee the majority of people in this room are going to raise their hand. Well, Jesus is going to take the conservative side. Because Jesus must be conservative. I got news for you. He didn't take the liberal side, nor did he take the conservative side, because both views were wrong. You mean conservative, and it doesn't always mean right? No. Conservative just means farther to the right than the liberal, but doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Here, they're trying to trap Jesus. If he agrees with the liberal view, or if he agrees with the conservative view, he's going to have to take a side, and he's going to alienate himself from a portion of the people. And if they can alienate Jesus from some of the people, or the majority of the people, then they can begin to discredit him. To the issue of divorce, the Torah says this in Matthew 24, 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his home. Notice in the text, the only text in the Old Testament that outlines the divorce clause, it is granted due to a wife's indecency. The Pharisees then took that verse, and they came up with two views on indecency. Rabbi Hillel taught what came known as the liberal view. That is, that indecency included a range of trivial issues, such as a wife constantly burning dinner, going out in public with her head uncovered, not being pretty enough, or speaking badly about her mother-in-law. Yeah, exactly. Some people would be in trouble. Now, accordingly, a husband then could divorce his wife for any reason. He saw fit. Rabbi Shammai, on the other hand, held it the conservative view, And said that indecency only refers to adultery. So, unless she committed adultery, that was the only thing she could be divorced, the only reason for divorce. Now, while they disagreed on the meaning of indecency, they both agreed that only men were allowed to divorce their spouses. Woman had no right to seek a divorce, according to them, because women were viewed as property to be bought and sold. Instead of taking either position, Jesus shrewdly quotes the Torah. Specifically, he quotes the Edenic law on marriage as found in Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. Again, Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Favorite part of that whole verse. Have you not read? This is what we call sacred sarcasm. (laughs) Jesus is questioning whether these students of the law had actually read God's law. Essentially, he's asking, listen, did you read the opening verses of the Torah? Now, Of course they had. They were students of the law. And so he uses a sarcastic question to rebuke the Pharisees. He's winking at them. He's letting them know He's on to their schemes. He knows what they're trying to do. From the beginning, he says, refers back to the creation narrative. Now this was a common practice amongst the rabbis, to look to the creation narrative to establish God's ideals for humanity. Additionally, quoting from Genesis, Jesus affirms that God is the creator and that he created humanity, and he created humanity as male and female. In the Hebrew text, male and female are in the emphatic position, meaning that God made one man and one woman. And the fact that God brought one man and one woman together in marriage is a prohibition against polygamy and a prohibition against same-sex relations. And then using three verbs, Jesus explains God's purpose for marriage. First, he says, a man shall leave his father and mother. Leave, katalepo, implies a change in the parent-child relationship. The new relationship between a husband and wife is to take priority over their relationship with their parents. This does not imply that they dishonor their parents or they cease caring for their parents, but responsibility, and priority changes. Second, a man shall be joined to his wife. Joined, proskalao, means to be glued together. It emphasizes what is to be a permanent marriage union. The word joined in Genesis 2.24, debak, means to stick close to, to become linked to, or to become united. And it is the same term God's that describes God, how God's people cling to Him in love. In Deuteronomy 10 and verse 20, it says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him, and cling to back to Him. In other words, God's people feared and served and loved Him. They clung to Him. Husbands and wives are to be united. They're to stick close. They're to allow nothing to come between each other. Husbands and wives should have no closer relationship than with one another. You can have other relationships, but none of those other relationships are to be closer than the relationship between you and your spouse. Third, the two shall become one flesh. Become, a me. Means to exist as something. Husbands and wives now exist as one person. That Hebrew term rendered as one, achad, in Genesis 2.24, conveys the idea of unity or one unit. We see the same term used in Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's achad. The Godhead has three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And yet they are distinct in their personhood. But they are united and function as one God. They each have distinctive ministries, but they're united in their character and attributes. And so too, a husband and wife are two distinct people. And yet they are one. A husband and wife is to share a spiritual, emotional, and physical unity. And the result of that one flesh union is typically a child, which is a blend of two individuals into one new person. You see, Jesus' point was that instead of debating whether or not it's right to divorce, you need to start by remembering that God's purpose for marriage is bringing one man and one woman into a relationship where they share spiritual, emotional, and physical unity. And so Jesus adds in verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate." God has joined together, God has brought together a man and a woman in marriage implying that marriage is not simply about making one another happy. No, marriage is about creating a spiritual, emotional, and physical unity that glorifies God. God intends that no one separate Clarizo, no one pull apart what he joined together. But that's exactly what man and woman did when they sinned in the garden. Death entered creation and ended the eternal marriage relationship so that now marriage ends at death. Let's move on to verse 7 to 9. In verses 7 through 9, Jesus sets forth God's permission for divorce. God's permission for divorce. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. Not satisfied with the answer that Jesus has given, the Pharisees ask a second question. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Note the reference to Moses. That's a Jewish euphemism for God's law as received by Moses. It appears they're attempting to now pit Jesus against Moses, the lawgiver. Nonetheless, their, their question is erroneous. But before we examine the error, let's consider where and why they pose the question. Okay? So we're going to deal with the error of their question in a moment. But there's something you need to understand here. You need to understand the motivation behind this question. Where were they? They were in Perea. We established that in verse 1. That they're in Perea. Now I know so many times when we read the scriptures we skip over those things. because We think, well that's not important. Okay. You know, so what? So he went down Judea and crossed over the Jordan. Big deal. It is a big deal. In light of this question. Follow with me. Perea was under the reign of Herod Antipas. A little over a year before, Antipas beheaded John the Baptizer for condemning Antipas' affair with his sister-in-law Herodias, whom he later married. John's condemnation of Herod Antipas was based on Leviticus eighteen sixteen, which says, "You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife." That's a nice way of saying don't have a sexual relationship with your sister-in-law. Hence, the fa- sense—that's what John condemned him for. He put him to death. The Pharisees hope now that Jesus will denounce all divorce. Okay which would then put Jesus in the position of having to condemn Antipas' divorce of his wife to marry Herodias, his sister-in-law. And listen, they figure if Antipas killed John for condemning his affair, he'll kill Jesus for condemning his divorce. So that's their motivation. Forget trying to trap Jesus and, you know, make him look bad. Now, we're going to get him killed because we know now he's going to he's just going to not flat out say no divorce at all that's why it's important that we find out what all those little things mean why those little grammatical statements and, or linguistic statements about crossing the jordan and being in judea and all of that why they're there god wasn't being paid by the dollar okay god just wasn't trying to fill up 500 word essay Everything in the scripture is there for a reason. That statement in verse 1 gives us the motivation behind the question of the Pharisees here in verse 7. Forget they attempted to discredit Jesus. Now they're going to have Jesus killed. Now let's get to the error. The Pharisees' error was stating that the law commanded divorce. I want to take you back to Deuteronomy 24. If you'd like to turn there, fine. Verses 1 through 4 of Deuteronomy. The only divorce clause in the Torah is found in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And we're going to read it. This is important to understand what Jesus is about to say. Again, what did the Pharisees say? Why did Moses command us? Verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens she finds no favor in his eye because he because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter husband dies she took her to be his wife then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. Now, Listen, you shall not bring sin into the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Little Hebrew grammar lesson here. In biblical Hebrew, commands are given in the imperfect mood and second person. Okay? Imperfect mood, second person. Within the divorce clause, There is not one imperfect verb joined to a second person. There is no command to obtain a divorce or write a bill of divorce. The only command in those four verses is found in verse 4, Do not bring sin on the land. And the only command there is given in the context not of divorce but of remarriage. Yahweh declares here that if you divorce your spouse and remarry, you're forbidden from divorcing your second spouse to go back to your first spouse. That's the only command. Okay? That's it. Neither Moses nor God commanded anyone to get a divorce. Instead, divorce was permitted. So they're twisting the scriptures here, folks. Now... Why did Yahweh permit divorce? Notice Jesus says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. The hardness of hearts, one Greek word, sclerocardia refers to stubbornness or obstinance. In other words, God permitted divorce because of their stubbornness. Their stubbornness was their refusal to cease from immorality and repent. Listen, folks, if you're in a relationship and there's ongoing immorality on the part of one of the spouses, and there's a refusal of them to stop and repent, it's going to make forgiveness and reconciliation almost, if not completely, impossible. Okay? And it's in such a case that God permits divorce. Now, the Pharisees claimed divorce was commanded, but Jesus set the record straight. He claims the law was permitted. Epitrepo. It's allowed, God allows divorce because of humanity's sinful nature. But it was not God's original intention. He says, from the beginning it has not been this way. Again, beginning, R.K. refers back to the creation narrative. Back to God's original intent for marriage. And what was God's original intent for marriage? His original intent was for marriage to be an eternal relationship. But recall, humanity sinned and guess what? Death now ends the marriage covenant's eternal aspect. Now, according to Deuteronomy twenty-two twenty-two, if a man is found lying with a married woman, both of them shall die. So if you're caught in adultery, you're supposed to be put to death. So if your husband is cheating on you or your wife is cheating on you, under God's law, they're to be put to death. And if they're put to death, guess what? Your marriage is ended and you're free to remarry. Makes Rabbi Shammai's position a little difficult, doesn't it? Because he said, well, you can only be divorced in a case of adultery. Well, typically under the law, adultery is punishable by death. The fact that God required death as the punishment for adultery means that he views adultery as the death of a marriage. However, in an act of grace, God permits divorce in cases of adultery instead of death. It is grace because by permitting divorce, God is providing the adulterer or the adulteress an opportunity to repent instead of being put to death. We have a great example in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Okay, So they were in a married relationship, but the marriage hadn't been officially consummated yet. They came together. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, Joseph her husband. Now notice this. What kind of man was Joseph? He was a righteous man. He was a holy man. He did not want to disgrace her and planned to divorce her privately or secretly. He assumed she had committed adultery. Instead of taking her to the courts to be tried as an adulteress and put to death, he graciously determined to divorce her privately. The fact that divorce replaced death as a permissible marriage end was the view of the early church for the first 300 years, and it was a view that the reformers later uh, renewed. So we need to emphasize something here. Jesus does not repeal the divorce allowance. He simply restates it within the boundary of the law. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So, if you obtain a divorce without legal grounds, you're in a breach of God's law. But, if you obtain a divorce biblically or legally, then you're okay. Notice here, God's permission of divorce is in cases of immorality. The Greek word here is pornea. Pornea. Now, the term immorality, pornea, is used here to translate the term indecency or hiera, hiera in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Indecency, irwa, is often translated as nakedness, referring to improper behavior or shameful exposure of one's genital area. In Leviticus 18, we have that word, irwa, translated as nakedness, referring to incest, adultery, homosexuality, lesbianism, and bestiality. Okay? So, indecency or immorality here refers to any illicit sexual relation. Okay? So, indecency isn't just adultery. It's any form of indecency that's of a sexual nature. In cases of illicit sexual relations, God says divorce is permitted. He does not expect any spouse to remain in such a state. Paul sets forth a second exception clause to divorce, that of desertion. Desertion. 1 Corinthians 7:15, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave; the brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. That phrase not under bondage. Dulao means you are not constrained by the law. Okay? In other words, if your spouse abandons you, You are no longer legally bound to that marriage. You are free to seek a divorce, and if you choose even to remarry. The abandoned spouse is no longer under the constraint of God's law to remain married to a deserter. Furthermore, you're legally free to remarry in God's sight. Remember, God has called you to live in peace, not hostility. To try to remain in a marriage where one spouse doesn't want to be in the marriage only leads to more conflict, and that doesn't honor God. Paul also gives us a third clause, exception clause, a third legitimate reason for a divorce. In 1 Corinthians 7.15, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother the sister is not under bondage. Here's the key. In such cases. The plural usage of the phrase, in such cases, tuitas," occurs nowhere else in the Greek New Testament. It occurs nowhere in the Septuagint. But there are over 600 usages of this phrase in other Greek literature between the 5th century B.C. and the 4th century A.D. And in each of those usages, the phrase can be rendered as any similar situation. Now, Paul says, in such cases, plural, he's not simply referring to desertion. If he was referring to other cases of desertion, it would have been singular. But because it's plural here, he refers to other situations that would destroy a marriage. Such cases would include, but aren't limited to, verbal abuse, sexual assault, emotional abuse, economic abuse, psychological assault. They would also include abuse of alcohol, drugs, and gambling. Such addictions are often accompanied by destructive behaviors such as lying, stealing, and even violence. And my friends, hear me out, abuse and addiction are in direct conflict with God's plan for marriage. Now that's not saying you have to get a divorce in that situation, but it's permitted. You see, in a marriage, husbands and wives are to be one flesh. But abuse or violence against your spouse violates that one flesh union. I love what Dr. Keener says here. He's a professor of biblical studies at Asbury. He says this, If a husband is beating his wife, that certainly violates the one-flesh union. He says, if he were beating himself, we'd recommend psychiatric help. If he's beating his wife, who is supposed to be one-flesh with him, he is certainly not treating her as one-flesh. You see, friends, when there's a violation of that one-flesh union, it is incumbent upon the victim or somebody near the victim to take the necessary steps to stop that cycle of violence and includes divorce if necessary. And certainly all divorce is regrettable, but I'll tell you, sometimes it is your best choice. It is your best choice. Returning to Matthew 19, 19, Jesus said, Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Boy, this, word, this verse gets so twisted because people are too lazy to actually look up what is the text is actually saying. Commits adultery. The passive voice of that verb, commit adultery, indicates that an unjust basis for divorce has caused the woman to be viewed by everybody else as an adulteress. Let me give you the Capellian translation. If you divorce your wife without proper grounds, you cause her to suffer as an adulteress because you've made her look like she was guilty of something illicit. Again, you have to remember, in their culture, a woman couldn't divorce, but a man could, and he would only divorce her because of something illicit. So if this man divorced this woman, she must have done something wrong in his eyes. Mark 10 1 through 12 is the corollary passage here to Matthew 19. And verse 11 of Mark 10 clarifies this. It says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. In other words, the husband who unjustly divorces his wife and marries another woman is guilty of adultery against her. Who's the her there? His first wife. You divorce your wife okay, for, for no legitimate biblical reason, you divorce your wife and you go out and marry another, you have just committed adultery against your first wife, God says. The first wife was scandalized by her former husband. She's not the adulteress. He's the adulterer. Now, in Mark ten twelve, Jesus says, my boy, let me, let me tell you what's coming here in verse 12, I'm going to knock your socks off and if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man she is committing adultery what do you see what Jesus did here it's just like what he did in matthew 5 you have heard it said unto you but i say unto you that the the, the rabbis have taught only a man can get a divorce jesus says that's not the intention of the divorce clause the divorce clause applies as much to men as it does women and so he says if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man she's committing adultery He just elevated the woman's position in Jewish culture. He broke the glass ceiling. They couldn't divorce. Now, in the Roman world, women could seek a divorce, but in the Jewish world, no. So, Mark 10, Jesus says here, the same condition applies to a woman as a man. If a woman unjustly divorces her husband and remarries, she's guilty of adultery. Now, again, that doesn't say if the divorce is legal, you're free to remarry. If it's biblical, you're free to remarry. He's only condemning remarriage in the case where the divorce is what? Not biblical. And again, let me clarify here. Okay? You got a divorce. Your your spouse left you. And they left you for an unbiblical reason. They're not free to remarry, but you are. Okay? They're under God's judgment. Not you. They killed the marriage. You're free. You're not under God's condemnation. Okay? God's permission of divorce provides the opportunity for remarriage. By God's standards, a person who who, who receives an illegitimate divorce is free to remarry. So if you're the innocent party, okay, you're free. Also, according to God's standards, someone initiates the divorce for a legitimate reason. You're free to remarry. So if you were the one initiating divorce because your spouse, you know, cheated on you, abused you, whatever, it's biblical. There's a biblical reason they desert you. Whatever, you're free to remarry. Now I will say this: if there's a desire for reconciliation, if you say, "Listen, I still love them, and I hope they get help, and I hope they correct this, and you know, I I I would like to get back together with them at some point," God bless you. In that case, you got to remain single because then if you went out and got remarried, now you can't go back to the first one. Okay. Because once once one party marries another, they can no longer return to the previous. So God intends marriage to be eternal. But because of sin, God cursed humanity with death, ending the marriage covenant's eternal aspect. God also allows divorce to end a marriage, again, because of humanity's sin. Nonetheless, God hates divorce like death because it wasn't part of his original plan for humanity. But just because God hates divorce, particularly what does he hate? Unjust divorce. Or divorces initiated merely to appease someone's uh, fleshly desires. But I want to underscore before we close, wrap this message up with our final point. Our final point is brief, so we have a moment. God does not hate the divorced. God does not hate the divorced. God himself is currently divorced. God is divorced from Israel. Jeremiah 3.8, Yahweh said, I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I sent her away, I divorced her, and I gave her a writing or a certificate of divorce. If all divorces sin, then God sinned. And if God sinned, he's no longer holy, and therefore he's not God. So the fact that God is divorced currently means what? Not all divorces are sinful. The only ones that are sinful are the people that get divorced because they want to go out and have relations with other people other than their spouse. Finally, verse 10 to 12. The disciples said to him, "'If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, isn't it better not to marry?' But he said to them, "'Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given.'" For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by man, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. God's principle for eunuchs. Now, eunuchs are unique. Okay? Verses 10 and 12. God's principle for eunuchs. The disciples had this idea that. Better not to get married then. Listen, if, if, if we can only be legally divorced for these reasons, then maybe we should have just stayed single. Now you have to understand, their question comes from years of rabbinic teaching and culture. The rabbis treated divorce as being as virtuous as marriage. One rabbi said this, A bad wife is like leprosy to her husband. The only remedy is to divorce her and be cured of your leprosy. Another, and maybe some of you have experienced that. Another rabbi said, listen, if you've got a bad spouse, it's your religious duty to divorce her. So divorce was looked at even as a religious duty. That's why they're struggling with Jesus' teaching. He just limited divorce. Well, you can't get a divorce because she burnt the toast. Oh man, it's better to remain single and not marry. Now you need to understand here, they understood Jesus to say marriage is to be a lifetime commitment. And divorce is allowed, but in severe cases. The reason they ask their question is because they're shallow and selfish. Oh man, if I'm stuck with her and she's burning dinner, it'd been better for me just to be single. They'd rather be single than work at preserving their marriage and eating burnt toast. And not much has changed today, has it? Jesus says, not all men can accept this statement, but only to those whom it has been given. The statement here is what? Well, the word accept, choreo, to make room for something in one's heart. The idea behind the term is this, to practice something. In other words, not everyone can make room in their heart for a lifetime of celibate singleness. Most people have a desire for sexual intimacy. Not many can practice celibacy. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 to the unmarried and the widows, if you don't have self-control, let them marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay? Don't live a life of frustration. Go out and get married. You see, celibate singleness is not something maintained by sheer willpower. It's not natural. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, I wish that all men were even as I myself... However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Now listen, there are many singles today who endure celibacy with frustration and temptation. And if that's you, don't avoid marriage, but prayerfully pursue it. On the other hand, there are singles enduring celibacy without frustration or temptation. Jesus explains there's three types of successful celibate singles out there. He calls them eunuchs. By the way, that's a unique term that he chooses there, because the rabbis used Deuteronomy 23:1 to teach that eunuchs could not come and worship God. But they, did, they failed to read Isaiah 56: four to 5 that says, "Thus says Yahweh to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath." And the eunuchs who choose what pleases me, the eunuchs who hold fast to my covenant, to them will I give in my, a place in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of my sons and daughters. I will give them, the eunuchs, an everlasting name which will not be cut off. And that is an interesting wordplay, is it not? So some eunuchs are pleasing to God. Notice he says, some eunuchs are born that way. In other words, they suffer from a congenital disorder that resulted in them having limited to no sexual capacity. Okay? Um, some became eunuchs by other people. For example, if you worked as a harem guard, you were castrated. Uh, some twisted parents would castrate their children in the worship of their God. The third is the eunuch who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, these, this group does not mutilate themselves. They're not cutting off their flesh. They're voluntarily choosing to live a celibate life to serve the Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.32, One who is unmarried is unconcerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. That word unmarried there typically refers to someone loosed from marriage, but it also then implies that they're now living in a celibate state. Because commitment is ne- because of the commitment necessary for their ministry, Paul says some believers are better off not marrying, but if that's the case, then God has specifically gifted them with celibacy. He says to those who are eunuchs for God's kingdom, and it's not everybody, Jesus says he who is able to accept this, let him accept it. If you can make room for this in your heart, if you can practice it, then practice it. If you can't, go get married. So in our final wrap-up here, God created marriage as a union between one man and one woman, a physical, emotional, spiritual union that God intended to be permanent. But because of sin, it ends with death and sometimes divorce. But because God created it, it is sacred. And I don't think I have to remind anyone of this, but I will. It shouldn't be hastily rushed into. If you're getting married just for sexual gratification, you're going to find out that when youthful lust and looks have passed, you're going to have to build your marriage on something else. Prayerfully strive to build your marriage on self-sacrificial love and strive to care for one another. Though God permits divorce, He didn't permit it so you can pursue your selfish desires. And I would also like to add, if you've suffered from a divorce because of some indecency, desertion, or some other violation of the one flesh union, God has not condemned you. God does not condemn you. Nor does he condemn you to live a life of singleness. You're free to remarry if you choose. I would also like to add, if you've initiated a divorce to gratify your selfish desire, or you've initiated a divorce for a less than biblical reason, then you need to repent of your sin. And finally, to the singles. Because God has gifted some with singleness, the church should not despise or treat singles as second-class citizens. Sadly, believers treat those who are single as they're less than complete. Too often we create ministries for the pairs and the spares. Listen, singles are not spare parts. Jesus, John the Baptizer, and the Apostle Paul were all single. Each was uniquely gifted by God with singleness to serve Him. And they were certainly complete in their own right before a holy God. So too God has gifted some believers with singleness to be eunuchs for His kingdom. God has also gifted others with marriage. And to you who have been gifted with marriage, I say use that gift to serve the Lord. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, Each man has his own gift from God. One in this manner, one in singleness, and another in that, We're in marriage. So whatever God is gifted with, go and use it to serve Him. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we come and ask You, in the name of Jesus, that You would help us with this difficult issue. That, Father, there has been much harm done on the issue of marriage and divorce and eunuchs or singles. There's been much hurt done by the church because of it. So, Father, help us to capture your spirit on these issues. That, Father, first and foremost, we'd understand your purpose of marriage, that one flesh union. And that, Lord, to those that are married, I pray that, Father, they would abound and grow in that one flesh union. Father, for those who have been divorced, I pray, Lord, that you'd be gracious to them. If someone has initiated a divorce to pursue a sinful desire, then, Father, convict them and bring them to repentance. And, Father, for those who have been victimized by a divorce, they've been divorced because their spouse has done something unbiblical. They've done something to harm that one flesh union. And, Father, I pray that you'd pour out your grace upon them. And I pray that, per venture, you might work in that other spouse and might prevent or save them and bring them to repentance and father i pray for those that are single i pray lord that they would see they have as much to offer the church just as married people and that father together whether single or married we can all serve the lord together for your honor and for your glory amen